When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to this week's podcast, Memories of Trinity College, Dublin. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. And exactly 10 years ago to the day, I undertook an oral history project in Trinity College. And what that entailed was recording interviews with members of the college community. And it was indeed an exciting adventure to capture life as it was in the college, stretching back over many decades in the last century. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse of the atmosphere in the college um, this is one of my favourite rooms in the world, the common room. Very beautiful room, as you can see. Housekeeping in the college. When they were cleaning out the fires, they'd be still red ashes. And the ashes would often burn their hands, you know, because they had to get the fires lit. Trinity Ball in the 1940s. In the front square, and also in the dining hall, you danced there. I remember. Rules and regulations for women, stretching back to the 1930s. Women in those days, was, they were definitely second-class citizens. Catholics having to get permission from their local bishop to enter Trinity. And there was a girl who wanted to do medicine. And we'd, every year for about five years she'd qualify. And at the end of it the bishop would say she couldn't come to Trinity. Memories of Dr. John Charles McQuaid. He says, don't you realise I, I am the Archbishop of Dublin and therefore I know everything that is going on in Dublin and therefore I know perfectly well how many Catholics there are in Trinity at the moment. Catholic students applied to John Charles McQuaid and he gave them uh, permission to come in uh, uncertain conditions. The Protestant community in the college in a funny way, I found the Protestant community here much more narrow-minded than the one I had been brought up in. Sporting life in college. Well, what would happen is when you came in as a fresher into Trinity, they had what was like a market in Front Square, and all the societies stood there shouting, join us, join us. College debates. And we, the committee, decided that we would debate contraception and a strong student movement in the college. There was a guy called Stevenson, who was the president of the Students' Union, who, who started to make a bit of a demonstration during, one of the, during a commencement ceremony. And uh, Jerry Giltrap lifted them up bodily and hooshed them out through the side of an example. And changing times in the 1970s. But it was the first major breakthrough 
in the women and the men having a, a social life on the campus together. And generation after generation following on their family's footsteps into Trinity College. As a small child, uh, you know, the way you think your, your, your parents are kind of in charge of everything. And I, I used to call it Daddy's College. I thought he was totally in charge of the whole place. <laughs> and we start with Joseph Houghton. He was the former professor of geography. And here he recalls his student days in Trinity in the early 40s. Trinity was very small in those days, you know. You got to know an awful lot of the of, of companions too. I mean, in doing geography and natural science, for example, there were only four of us. But that was within the context of natural science because we had to do. Um, I did botany uh, with old Henry Dixon, <laughs> and he used to say, "To learn anything new, his brain was full. To learn anything new, he had to forget something." And he certainly did. He'd come and he'd give a lecture, which is identical with the one he'd given the previous day. <laughs> and we would sit back. And we eventually decided to desert botany, four of us. We all went to bacteriology. <laughs> <laughs> and we were thrown out of bacteriology. <laughs> we were sitting in the back and uh, it was... Uh, Oh, what was the name of the professor of bacteriology? It was called bacteriology in those days, yeah, not yes. microbiology. Yeah. So we had to go back to botany again. Yeah. But there was a, a young Australian assistant there, yeah. and he sort of took over and we romped on. So that was that, and then I did geology. Mm. Now, I liked uh, <coughs> Frank Mitchell, of course, was a young man then. Uh, he had just come on the staff. He was a very good lecturer. What was the atmosphere in Trinity like in, in the 1930s? Women in those days, was, they were definitely second-class citizens. Leslie Greer entered Trinity College in the 1930s, and then she got involved in the college societies. You couldn't be a member of the HIST, and you couldn't be a member of the PHIL. You could be a member of players. That was mixed and you could be a member of the Modern Language Society. And there were various societies you could be a member of, but the Hist and the Phil, which were really important societies, no women. And you couldn't, uh, you couldn't eat on commons. Not, it not was out of bounds, wasn't it, yeah? Women were not allowed in. Mm. Uh, while I was there, there was uh, some people, some women, about five women, with Connor Cruz O'Brien and some other chaps, did uh, make an effort to go in and eat on commons. But they were thrown out. And the disgraceful thing was that most of the students, the men's students who were eating there at the time, were not in favour of having the women in there at all. And, of course, you had to leave at six o'clock. Yes. I don't remember being deeply enraged by that at the time because I think probably it just was being in Trinity at all seemed a nice thing.
and of course the players was great fun yes and and uh, debating and that did you get involved in any uh, debating yes well there was the Elizabethan society which was uh, formed to be uh, to take the place of the histon the phil and we did have debates with uh, we were allowed to debate with very junior chaps i think they were the neophytes and uh, i at one time for my sins i was treasurer and i got a gold medal for debating but unfortunately as i was treasurer i knew that the elizabethan society didn't have enough money to pay for a gold medal so i thought well i just have to have a medal sort of golded over it you know Lyndon Lewis, widow of Professor John Lewis, were both very involved in Trinity life in the 1940s. The Trinity Ball in the early days, can you talk to me about those? Yes, well, we were at the very first one ever. I think my husband was on the board at the time, and they asked for permission, and first it was not granted, and then it was granted... And we went to the first one, and it was very exciting. It was a dry night, I remember. And the condition was you had to have a meal in order that you could uh, charge people to come in. And there was a great marquee, and it was all a bit of a frantic uh, scramble. But it was very memorable. Was it formal? Oh, very much formal. Oh, yes. It was under uh, canvas? Yes. where, Where was the marquee set up? In the front square, and also in the dining hall, you danced there, I remember. And there was a marquee also in the new square. In both squares, I think. Front square and new square. Former professor of political economy was Loudon Ryan, and he was a student in the college in the 1940s. What about the, uh, the protocol uh, at that time? I don't know, what would also have worn uh, a jacket and a tie for commons every evening. There were two sittings, one at uh, six o'clock, second commons at five past seven. The kitchens and commons were ruled over by Jean Montgomery, the superintendent of the kitchens, who came from Bellamina. And had been, I think, in uh, one of the women's forces in the First World War. A very formidable woman. Uh, and uh, she kept an eagle eye on uh, uh, not only the kitchens, obviously, but uh, on how people were dressed. And... Uh, timekeeping. I, I can remember on one occasion uh, a senior fellow was late uh, uh, tried to uh, not quite sneak in but uh, come up a side aisle in the dining hall uh, but he didn't make it. 
Barbara Wright was the former professor of French literature and a widow of Professor William Wright. Now, what was Trinity like in 1952 as a student coming into the college? Yes, well, um, it was really quite different from what it is now. It was much smaller. It was very special for women in those days because um, we had to be out of the college by 6pm. Later it became 7. And when we came in, we had to sign a book in the porter's lodge at the front gate uh, saying that we were going to the reading room of the library or we were going to this or that society. Um, but uh, since we knew no different, um, it yeah. didn't actually bother any of us, I think, really. That may seem uncritical in hindsight, but um, they were very, very happy years. Uh, what I do regret is that women were not then allowed to be um, members of the HIST, the Historical Society, which is the major debating society of the college. And uh, I think that was um, a sad loss, equally of the Philosophical Society. David McConnell, Professor of Genetics, remembering his debating days as a student in the college. I joined the HIST, the College Historical Society, which was the debating society. And that was something that came from um, uh, Skeffington having established a debating society in Sanford Park. I went to the first meeting of that. I remember him teaching us how to speak. So when I went into college, Skeffington was very closely associated with the HIST. He was a vice president and spoke there very often. And so I joined the HIST. It was roughly the equivalent of the LNH, say, in, UC in UCD. But it is the oldest student debating society in the world. And amongst its members were had been Wolf Tone and Robert Emmett and Thomas Davis, um, Isaac Butt, uh, uh, Carson, all sorts of extraordinary people, Douglas Hyde. So it had a terrific lineage of, uh, if you like, heroes of Irish, um, uh, of Irish history. And um, in your time, uh, where, where you were debating, yeah. can you remember any of your debates? Oh, uh, well, well, one now that would stand out. Well, I remember one, one thing that does stand out. Okay, we decided. I, I ended up on the committee and... As first of all, librarian, and the following year I was auditor. So in that sense, I, I mean, Wolf Tone had been auditor, and Thomas Davis had been auditor. So I don't know. I became auditor, and it was an extraordinary business. And but I remember one debate when I was the year I was librarian, and this is the early sixties, middle sixties, let's say. And we, the committee, decided that we would debate contraception. And in those days, we had to send our list of motions to the board for their approval before the term started. So we sent the due list and the board must have had apoplexy. In any case, the word came back from the board, yes, we can debate it, but it must be in camera. No people who are not members can be present. No members of the press can be present. So <laughs> we duly had the debate. And that was very typical of Trinity in those days. I mean, we were uh, tweaking the lion's tail all the, uh, or, or, or picking leaves off the shamrock, if you like. Geraldine Watts, brought up in Belfast, entered Trinity in 1949. She recalls here the Protestant community in the college 
and she's also the widow of the former William Watts, the provost in the college. What were your first impressions in the 19... My goodness. That was in 1949. 1949, yeah. That was 49, I think. We were were after the war years and, uh, you know, things were... um, Economically, they weren't great. But what was Trinity like in the 1949? It was very old-fashioned, shall we say. (laughs) The rooms, the lecture rooms, were heated by turf fires. Uh, the I hadn't I had no experience of uh, that sort of life, and uh, it was the Georgian buildings also were new to me. I was Belfast is a Victorian city, and uh, I, I was used to Victorian buildings, and in a funny way, I found the Protestant community here much more narrow-minded than the one I had been brought up in. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah, because it was much more middle class. <laughs> I think is the reason. What was the college at the time? Did it have a lot of the old, um, say, the old ways that never left yes. us, for even oh, yes. from the 19th oh, century? yes, yes. yes. We had to wear gowns to go to lectures. You didn't get credit for being there if you weren't wearing your gown. At least that was with quite a lot of the lecturers. The younger ones weren't so fussy, but you were. Uh, I mean, one of the things... And you were left to find your own way. (laughs) I mean, I can remember being told that the timetable was up in uh, the Regent House in the front gate. And I went and I looked at it. And it had things that said Michaelmas term, Hillary term, Trinity term. And I looked at it and I said, what does that mean? So that it was more formal and more cut off. It was very cut off from the rest of the city, really. Mm Professor of Modern History Aidan Clark and son of Austin Clark remembers his college days when he entered college in 1951. My initial impression was the very large proportion of students who didn't actually come from Ireland at all. In the, if you like, the population mix of their college was certainly not what I expected. You know? yes. um, and the class that I was in, in, in history... Um, I think there would have been, I suppose, just over 30, and maybe 32, 33. Um, But I think only six or seven of us were Irish. Yes. And that includes Northern Ireland. So the Trinity in the 50s was very much um, a sort of, um, I won't say, dumping ground, but it was a place where if you didn't get into Oxford and Cambridge or... St. Andrews, perhaps, um, you considered. Uh, so we, we, we had uh, quite, quite a very substantial proportion of, uh, of English students. Was that a little bit uh, off, off-putting? Um, <clears throat> well, it wasn't off-putting for me if it was for some people, because, <laughs> because I, I had been in... in uh, largely non-Catholic environment in school at any rate, you know. 
Um, but it, it, it was just sort of surprising, if you know what I mean. And, yes. uh, and it, was, um, it was a sort of unknown, if you like. Um, I, I still recall that um, until the first year exam, one didn't actually know where one stood against people like this, you know, who <laughs> had sort of the polish of Eton and so on. Um, so uh, once the first-year exams uh, took place, we realised that we weren't actually inferior. <laughs> Donald Weir, former professor of physics, entered Trinity College as a student in 1952. It, 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 the school, the, the number in the medical school was relatively small, it was something like 28 or t- to 30 students per year. Um, but the interesting thing was that they were all quite mature students because at that time we used to get South African students coming to Trinity and uh, people like Nico de Vett and Tony Dawson and Jock Masters and these sort of South African names that, that were. Well, they were all extremely good rugby players and cricketers. So we, the, the, the Trinity rugby team and the cricket team did very well in those days. And, and there was a quite, a, quite a mature group um, were present. Uh, uh, were you on the team yourself? I wasn't. Uh, I was. I, I wasn't. On, no, I, I, mean, I was second 11s or third 11s or this, this sort of thing. Yeah, but could you tell me, though, in those early years in the 50s, um, what was the atmosphere like in the, in the well, school? Was it, was, no, in, in the college? In college. Yeah. It was, well, the, the major thing was that the, um, what do you call the interregnum, not that's not, not the right word that I want, but the, the, the inhibition of Catholic students coming to Trinity was still in place. John Charles McQuaid was uh, ruling the roost and he was trying to prevent uh, in fact (laughs) very effectively preventing Catholic students from entering Trinity and forcing them to go to UCD instead. And um, one of my great friends, Dermot Harrison, who Subsequently, when uh, when I came back as a as, as a lecturer in medicine, um, he 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 in fact went to John Charles McQuaid's palace to um, try and have it out with him about about this, and saying, "Don't you realise that we we have this number of students and in, in, and we need a chaplain and that sort of thing?" And he says, "Don't you realise?" And, and I, I am the Archbishop of Dublin and therefore I know everything that is going on in Dublin and therefore I know perfectly well how many Catholics there are in Trinity at the moment. <laughs> Marcus Webb, former professor of psychiatry, remembering here his student days. What, so you were in Trinity then uh, sometime in the 50s, were you? The... Yes, 51 to 56. What was it like there at that time? I think the the enormous difference is is in the numbers. I mean, one tended to know everybody by sight. I think walking past them in College Green, College Park, mm. uh, you'd know nearly everybody, uh, at least a nod to. <coughs> and I think there were only around two thousand students on, uh, in in total at that time. 
Were you a member of any of the societies there? Yes, well, there was the Biological Society, which was the medical one, so I was a member of that and uh, attended Mm. for the first couple of years, anyway, reasonably diligently, and then one got caught up in hospital affairs and one tended not to, to be so active then. But uh, otherwise, I wasn't really a member of the Front Square societies. I played hockey, which was a, an outlet, and uh, made a lot of good friends there. Still see many of them. Right. So, but the sporting life uh, would have been all hockey. Would you have participated yes. in any of the other games? I didn't. No, no. We were always uh, played cricket at school. Again, another Protestant game, I think. And uh, <coughs> but I. I didn't play cricket in college. And was there, uh, when you were there uh, as a student that time, was Trinity seen as Anglo, uh, cut off from outside? Well, that was my impression. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, I think it probably was. It was changing. And a lot of my friends in, in my year would have been Catholic, but I think they still had to get permission to to go to Trinity, which wasn't always easy to obtain. Janet Moody, recalling here her early days being brought into the college as a child by her father, who was the former professor of modern history, W.T. Moody. Um, I can remember as a small child going into Trinity. My father often went to Trinity on the bicycle, and he was quite well known for the long hair flying in the wind on the bicycle, and he had, um, at the time we were very small, he had a, a, a seat on his bicycle. Mm-hmm. And I can remember um, going in with him and he had a key to the side doors of Trinity, the big, heavy iron, I suppose they are, doors. And, he, and for a child, it was like going into a magical world because they were the, the, in, inside in Trinity. Uh, we we went to the um, the Provost Garden and my memory is that there was a wi- what I was told was a wishing well there in the Provost Garden I've no idea if that was real or not I was just a figment of my imagination and the other thing was that where is now the arts block was then the Fellows Garden and at one stage and I don't know how long ago this was sometimes you don't know whether you t- were told something or whether you actually remembered but anyway, I have an image of... There were peacocks in the fellow's garden at one stage. Um, the other thing I remember, and again, I'm not sure what, um, what age I was, but I can remember playing croquet in the fellow's garden. <laughs> so that was totally another world. So those were childhood memories. And I used to, as a small child, uh, you know, the way you think your your, your parents are kind of in charge of everything, and I, I used to call it Daddy's College. I thought he was totally in charge of the whole place. <laughs> so I have, you know, I had connections with Trinity long before I went there. Melissa Webb was former chairperson of Trinity Association and Trust. Her father was the former Professor Stanford, and Melissa was very involved in sports in the college, and here she recalls that. Well, what would happen is when you came in as a fresher into Trinity, they had what was like a market in Front Square, and all the society stood there shouting, join us, join us. 
and you only had to pay a capitation fee in those days of five shillings a term, for which you could join any society and do anything, really. It was wonderful. And so I joined the sailing, and then we uh, were had full use of uh, the Royal St. George Yacht Club in Dunleary, and the, the, it had, the Fireflies were based there, and then in the National was where they based all the mermaids, which is slightly mm. larger dinghy. And uh, you had to pass a mermaid test to be allowed to sail, which <laughs> looking back on it was fun, to be allowed to not just crew, to be allowed to sail helmet yourself. But I suppose we joined in regattas and we joined, took people out for fun. We sailed around Dorky Island and we did have some racing. I used to crew for some of the greats when they were racing, all right, because that was fun. And, and the racing then, uh, who were you competing against? We were, yeah, well, that's a good point. We were competing. I think they still had the Dublin Bay sailing at that stage, but a lot of it was Trinity competing against each other most of the time. Mm. It wasn't until later they were probably competing against. So you were really only competing against each other, yeah. which was actually quite fun. It wasn't as... <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, if you're going round, you're crewing from somebody and you're going round a mark and he, you're supposed to be letting down the centre plate and he has lost, he has had his first ever pair of contact lenses, which was a huge thing in those days and you wouldn't need to lose them. They weren't disposable. Like now. And just <laughs> going round the mark, I was trying to let down the centre plate and find... It's got lenses in the bottom of the boat. So it was fun. In 1966, Connie Harrison was appointed to Administration Department. And here she talks about some of the letters that came her way. Well, it, it's fascinating. Uh, some of, I mean, did you, did you uh, take particular notice at the time as to who, you know, where, where the letters were coming from. And, uh, yes, uh, yes, we, uh, we had some very interesting ones. But it was one from Kerry, and there was a girl who wanted to do medicine. And we'd, every year for about five years, she'd qualify. And at the end of it, the bishop would say she couldn't come to Trinity. Was that true? Is that true? Mm. My goodness, yeah. Yeah. He wouldn't, he wouldn't give her permission. I, can't, I don't know who was down there at the time, but... It, the, the, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't encouraged by the Catholics to come to Trinity at those in those days. So he, he would he would stop her, and I don't know whether she ever went anywhere and did her her you know her vocation with medicine. Yes, that was one that used to strike me, and I didn't know the kind of hierarchy or the people in Dublin very well, and you'd get letters from fathers and then you'd write back real innocently and, and maybe call them mister and you'd get a phone call to say do you realize i am doctor so-and-so or i am so-and-so <laughs> brian mcmurray was professor of organic chemistry and he was elected to fellowship in 1959 well my one of my first jobs as a, a, a junior lecturer was to lecture to physiotherapists and the physiotherapy school was run by two Anglo-Irish ladies called Miss Mix and Miss, Miss Ellen Miss Mix. My s sister was a physiotherapist and studied there. Uh, and it was, of course, there was a mixed, religious-wise, uh, students. And the students, uh, Catholic students, applied to John Charles McQuaid. And he gave them uh, permission to come in 
uh, uncertain conditions. One, they were to come in by the nearest gate to the lecture theatre. They were to go directly to the lecture theatre. They were not to speak to anybody. They were not to join any student society. They were to go to the lecture theatre, uh, get the lecture, and then go out the yes. same way. Uh, furthermore, there had to be a member of staff from the school attending all the lectures. Yes. And there were lectures in chemistry, in physics, and anatomy, and maybe physiology, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but um, anyway, they came in, there were great girls, and they, um, they, they sat down, and I, I gave them some basic chemistry. Uh, and Miss Manifold, who was a young member of staff in the school, she came with them, and within five minutes she was fast asleep. So I, <laughs> the students could have been damaged by me for the, land, the remaining 55, 55 minutes. Yes, yes. Susan Parks entered Trinity College in 1954 as a student, and in 1966 she returned again to work in the School of Education. And here she recalls those days. What was the college like in '66? Uh, from I, you were now out of it for about. Um, Five years. Five years, yeah. Mm. Has it changed much in that time? It had changed. It had changed a lot. It was a much more cheerful place, I decided. Oh, that was me. Uh, yeah, there was much more positive. There were a lot of students still coming from England. Uh, there was a lot going on in, in drama and players. There was a lot going on in debate, because the 60s debates were just beginning, you know. The early 60s were fairly conservative, but the second half of the 60s, of course, were to become very powerfully, universities are very powerfully involved, involved, involved in student I mean, all of the uh, world student protest was taking place. And we had a very strong student movement here in the second half of the 60s, which made the place very exciting mm-hmm. to be with. And, uh, open, and it was democratised in a way. Things opened because students were... But, yeah, and it's democratised for, for junior staff. They benefited a lot from the student revolt because if they were going to give, say, places to students on the board, they had to create a new constituent for junior staff. And we benefited, undoubtedly. And one of the main key people here would have been Kader Asmal, who uh, was in the law department and was a great leader among the staff and the students uh, of the... Uh, your rights. He was a great... If you ever had a student in trouble... You would go to Kader and say, "What can I? What should I do for him?" You know, yeah. because Kader was a lawyer and a solicitor and knew, and he was a very much into anti-apartheid then. Oh, yeah, and that was <coughs> happening, of course. Oh, yes, that was happening too. You see, and the anti-apartheid movement was growing, and the student movement was strong. So, this, I found the college extremely exciting. We had, we had, we now had a mixed coffee shop. That was a big, big breakthrough. It was called the coffee shop, <laughs> <laughs> and it was in number twenty-seven. Okay, and that, was that a meeting place? That became uh, really the place for people to go and meet, uh, because there hadn't been anywhere else before, yeah. as I said to you in the 50s. The coffee shop was considered quite dashing, and they served the most lovely buns with fried eggs in them. And these were very popular among students. You went and had your, bu- your egg bun, uh, and you could get... And they opened early in the morning. Uh, for, a lot of people used to go for Levinson's breakfast, lunch. Uh, they closed in the evening. They weren't open in the evening. But it was the first major breakthrough in the women and the men 
having a, a social life on the campus together, as opposed to having to go off for the gathering. And it was, I realised looking back, it was a very significant sign yes. that the emancipation of the women were going to come. Now, as you know, the 60s was also an era. Women were becoming much more vocal yes. and much more uh, demanding of, the, of their of, of equality. Ian Howey was appointed to the first board of the Higher Education Authority. He was vice provost in the 1960s, and here he recalls the students' movement. How do you think McConnell handled that situation at that time? Well, I think it would. I think it depended very much on the officers' group as a whole and their. Well, how did you handle it? Do you think that you did? Probably very badly. (laughs) I, um, I think we kind of lived through it, and it evolved. It changed Mm -hmm. uh, over the years. The the nature of uh, at some stage it was. Some stage it was quite serious. They were. There was a there was a, there was a member of a junior member of staff in one of the science departments who was organising things, and they were actually getting funding and literature from Canada, and uh, it was coming out in large quantities and was being distributed and what have you. Um, so that was that was a bit worrying, um, but the board made various concessions and eventually obvious I mean you would know about this or you'd have heard about mm-hmm. it but the the president of the students union got a seat on the board and uh, and there was you know recognition of uh, the need to hear what the students that's right were were you know were thinking and needing in the comment but there was a guy called Stevenson who was the president of the students' union who, who started to make a bit of a demonstration during one of the during a commencement ceremony, and uh, Jerry Giltrap lifted them up bodily and whooshed them out through the side of an example. Rita O'Mahony had the title of Lady Housekeeper for twenty nine years in Trinity College in the sixties and seventies, and here she remembers some of those days. Where was your office? Or did you My, I did. I had an office. My office was in the... It was beside the agent, Colonel Walsh. It was in House 1, in the front square. I had an office beside him. And Jennifer Gill was beside me, and, and Captain Martin and Major Simpson. We were all in the one. They were all the army people. And um, so, so then you, were, you had access to Colonel Walsh. Now, what was your remit? In your job, well, take me through a day a in day, your job. Well, you were in. You were here after seven in the morning, mm-hmm. and when you came in, the first thing you went on the on your you looked to see. Well, because you had supervisors, you went on the rounds. You took maybe a different place because it was so big. You decided you'd go maybe to physiology, so you went and you knew every member of staff. And also, you'd know everything about them. So you'd know if they had their daughter had a baby or whatever else. Somebody was sick belonged to them. There was this, you know, care, family. It was like, no matter who they were. So you went and you just said, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, you, you went around the area and you looked at the job. And if you weren't happy, you would say so. And you'd come back maybe in a week or two. 
And then you came back, so you were back about 9.30 in your office. And um, you had a cup of tea, and, and then you met your supervisors. They who, were working. Who were they, now? they were, there was one particular lady, uh, a Mrs. Murphy. She had started as a cleaner. A lot of those were promoted cleaners. Yes. Yeah. And um, they were made supervisors because they were very good. But Mrs. Murphy came in here when she was 14 years of age and she married and she was here until she was 65. And uh, she could tell you many a tale about the place. And um, she was now, when I came, there were still fires in some of the offices. So the fires had to be lit in the mornings. And Mrs. Murphy part of my time told me that I mean there were fires everywhere so the cleaners used to have to go down into the basements Mm -hmm. in the morning and this was at 6 o'clock in the morning and get buckets of coal and when they were cleaning out the fires they'd be still red ashes and the ashes would often burn their hands you know because they had to get the fires lit and they'd come out and the wind the wind was there the, the ashes would blow maybe back in their face or hands. And um, so it was very, very hard work. There were no such thing as vacuum cleaners. Everything was, you know, they used mops and brushes and things like that. But, but when I came here, there were still a few offices of the old regime that had to have their fires lit in the mornings. But uh, there was a time when every student had a fire lit in the morning in his residence. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that would have meant that there was quite a large uh, bowl or cold bunker somewhere. Oh, well, this, these were all in the basements. Yes. Those basements are still there. You yeah. nearly smell the coal if you go down into them. Yeah. Because, you know, we used those. We had, um, we had cleaning stores and that downstairs. We, that I got rid of all that, you know, because they were damp old places. And the steward in the Provost House in the 1970s was Dick Lone. In 1974, Dr. McConnell, the then provost, retired, and Dr. Lyons, Professor Lyons, took over as provost, and they wanted a full-time steward in the house. So, for that job, having been in the college for 22 years at that time, I was interviewed by six people and put on trial for three months which was successful. I spent the rest of my time in college in the provost's house then as the provost steward and met many famous people. Uh, oh, I, indeed, I, yeah. I, uh, I had the uh, pleasure of uh, holding Princess Grace's coat when she put it on and uh, the president's, uh, President de Valera came to the door one time this is in Dr. McConnell's time, and uh, I opened the door, and President de Valera at that time, his sight was very poor. And when I opened the door, he, he thought he was speaking to Dr. McConnell, and he put out his hand for me to shake, and he said, Dr. McConnell, he said to me, thinking he was talking to Dr. McConnell. So I brought him in, and... Uh, eventually, of course, he, he found the, the provost, and he was able to have his interview with him. At a later date, um, President Shanti, an earlier date rather, that was, President Shanti O'Kelly came to a reception 
and there's a big chest in the hall of the Provost's house and when there's receptions on everybody's coat is put on top of this big chest and President Shanti O'Kelly was a, sh- a small man and it came to him nobody left a reception until the president left so the president was the first to go and his aide de camp and the provost secretary at the time came to look for the president's coat and while they were rumbling around among about 20 coats the aide de camp said find the shortest one and you'll have the right one because president Shanti O'Kelly was such a small man <laughs> and uh, it eventually his coat was found uh, at another time Dr Gareth Fitzgerald and Jack Lynch were in at a reception and their coats were put on a chair in the hall one on top of the other the two coats looked identical but uh, Mr Lynch left first but he picked up Gareth Fitzgerald's coat by mistake and I had to correct him I said that's your coat pointing to his own coat he put on his own coat and when Garrett Fitzgerald came along to get his coat I mentioned to him, I said, Mr Lynch nearly took your coat he said he wouldn't fill it <laughs> he said The first Catholic professor to enter Trinity College was Valentine Bryce and I spoke to him on the day that he retired from the college This is one of my favourite rooms in the world the common room very beautiful room, as you can see. With various distinguished former members of staff around the walls. <coughs> that again is Adam Loftus, the first provost. Very interesting man down there on the left, Samuel Houghton. Can we sit down for a we moment? Can, of yes. Yes. Is this a room that you would come to? Yeah. Yes. This is the common room. The common room means a place where people can meet in common. So what generally happens is that people come and have their lunch from the staff dining home downstairs and then come up afterwards and have a cup of coffee and talk to people and meet with people. I think a lot of business is done informally in this room. A lot of contacts are made, a lot of things are raised with one person with another rather than going through the formality of letter writing or telephoning. It, it, it's just, it's just, a, and then of course the, the fellows meet here. The fellows are still uh, an element in the body corporate that goes back to the foundation. The corporation consists of the provost, the fellows, and the scholars. The scholars being students. That's interesting. Recognition given to the role of the students in the governing of the university. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And so the fellows have their meetings here. There's a meeting here next Tuesday evening, for example. Mm-hmm. So, uh, a lot of uh, conversation. Would, would this be a place that would be open to women? Uh, well, yes, as long as they're on the staff. Yes. There was a time when, when, when it wouldn't be. And there was a time when women couldn't become fellows. I remember when the breakthrough happened. That happened uh, in the period since I came here, a year or two after I came. I had nothing to do with it. It was the... I mean, we all voted for it at the time, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was a move towards giving women equality. W- women had been professors here for a long time, some very eminent people, like that lady Otway Riven that I mentioned earlier, 
but black didn't become fellows until the 1960s. Well, we've come to the end of this podcast, Memories of Trinity College Dublin. You've been listening to a selection of sound clips taken from 88 interviews, which are all included in the Trinity Oral History Project. And they're available to see on our website. That's irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.